Let's pray. Let's, let's just commit the, this message to the Lord. Lord, we just thank you for this time to just have a few minutes while we study your word that you've left for us, the accounts of events from 2,000 year, years ago that re- resonate today. And Lord, just as I bring these few short thoughts before, uh, to the church, Lord, we just pray that you will let the words that come from you stick in people's hearts and the inevitable rubbish that comes from our mouth be forgotten. But Lord, that you will speak this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're looking at John's Gospel, we're just uh, sailing through it quite at a quite gradual pace, but uh, last week Keith took us through the early part of chapter 11, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, a famous story, and that's what chapter 11 is most famous for perhaps, and as well as including the smallest verse in the Bible. But before we get into things, let's just read the rest of this uh, chapter together. Sometimes it gets overlooked, so let's just... Um, spend a bit of time just reading it together so please turn to John chapter 11 if you have your Bibles with you if you haven't got them the words will be up on the screen um, so we can read together so John chapter 11 verse 45 therefore many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If you let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly amongst the Jews, and instead he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Now, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So... We're now moving to the end of chapter 11 there. And it's a, a point of transition in the book. It's, it's, it's a, it, John's gospel is written in a very different way to, to, to the other three gospels. It's not simply this chronological, historical na- narrative where it's A happens before B and then leads to C and step four happens and then step five. And it's all conse- consecutive. John's not organised his gospel that way. Sometimes people look at this gospel that John's written and and, and the way the narrative's laid out in a a different order from those of the other gospels and say, ah, contradictions in the Bible must be a load of nonsense. They love to find apparent contradictions in the Bible. But John John isn't contradicting the other gospels. He's not, not trying to do what they did. He's doing something else. 
See, Luke sets out in the front, right at the beginning of his gospel, what he's trying to do for his patron, the person that commissioned him to write the book, Theophilus. He says, write an orderly account. That, that, that's what a scientific brain, Luke was a doctor. He was conducting a journalistic historical investigation, producing a historical narrative of some remarkable events, a chronological order. And John's not trying to do that. He's looking at it in quite a different way. His aim is to organize the material that he's got at his fingertips as an eyewitness and someone right at the center of all that was happening with Jesus' ministry. He's gonna present some key events and he's gonna present it in such a way that you, the reader, will see Jesus the Messiah. And you'll believe, as he believes, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's trying to persuade you. He's trying to show you, to illustrate, Jesus is the Messiah. This is the really important thing. And these things happen to show you that that's the case. So John organizes his account and his understanding of Jesus' ministry around seven key signs, as he calls them. Miraculous signs, miracles that were convincing of Jesus' power and his integrity and who he was. So the first sign that we see in the Gospel of John is, is, is Jesus turning water into wine in chapter four, in chapter two, I beg your pardon. And then secondly, we see him healing an official son in chapter four. And then thirdly, he heals at the pool of Bethesda in chapter five. And then fourth, he feeds 5,000 people in chapter six. And then the fifth sign, also in the same chapter, Jesus walks on water. And then the sixth line, Jesus heals a, blind, a man who was born blind, blind from birth, the chapter 9 says. And then the seventh sign, which we just studied last week, that Keith talked about last week, was the raising of Lazarus. So this text is now incredibly important because John's just laid out his case in the first 11 and a, or 10 and a half chapters. He's laid out this thesis demonstrating that these key signs that Jesus showed, these are, these are the reasons you ought to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And these signs aren't just random miracles, if, if miracles can be random. They, John says in the last verse of his book, Jesus did many other things as well. He's not claiming this is everything that Jesus did. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that be written. He doesn't recount everything. He doesn't just try and, and overwhelm the reader with this massive information. He selects key miracles, key events that really illustrate his point. And they show that Jesus demonstrated his power over the natural realm and also power over the spiritual realm. And now all of a sudden we read that Jesus shows he has power over death itself, the ultimate reality. So then there's this second transition that we can see happening at the same time in this passage. He's just recounted the, um, his events and he's coming into a different part of the narrative. And looking at the narrative arc of the book, the first 11 chapters, these first, well, first 10 and, 10 and a half chapters take, a take place over a period of years, quite a lengthy period. They're just selected elements out of quite a long period of time. But if you look forward from this point, chapter 12 takes, takes place over just a few days. And then chapters 13 to 18, the last five chapters, are just really about things that happened in a matter of hours. The whole narrative slows down and focuses in. And it's doing the same thing that Hollywood does in an action film. You get all, all the backstory, all the build-up, the opening credits and events. 
take, may have taken place over months or years, and then you flip, they're flipped through those first few minutes of the film, and then as the main narrative starts, you, you're brought right into the present, and James Bond or Jason Bourne or whoever starts getting involved and, and, and working out what's gone on, and, 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 and that bit, bit of the film may be set over a few days or weeks, perhaps, and then the climax comes, and the, the last half hour of the film, you've got, it all kicks off with car chases and explosions, and, and all that's in real time, and perhaps even faster, and the crunch comes, and the point. And that's the same narrative device that, that John's using here. He's compressing and focusing as he builds his case and layer upon layer of evidence, and then he brings us to the point. So, Jesus, so John here sets out one of his major themes. There's belief by those whom you'd not expect to believe, and then there's a failure to believe by those whom you would expect to believe. He's got these two contrasting groups of people, and he sets this theme right at the beginning of his chapter one of his book, of his gospel, verses nine to 13, he says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him, but all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the will of man, nor the flesh, but of God. And there's the contrast, there's the great irony that John outlines through the book. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. And if anyone was going to receive him, you'd think it was his own. But they didn't. It was other, other people, outsiders, outcasts, people on the margins, people who were ignored and not listened to and not thought important. In chapter 2, some simple men, the Bible calls them, believe, John calls them. I spoke about this back when we were in lockdown, if you can remember that far back, when we looked at this early part of John, last time we were looking in the book. Now, Jesus prophesied his own death and his resurrection, and his disciples remembered that prophecy and believed those words that Jesus had spoken as he cleared the temple and was asked for a sign by the temple authorities. Now, in chapter 3 of John, Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders, John, uh, Jesus speaks to him, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. And in verse, in, in verse 10 of chapter 3, Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel, he says to, to Nicodemus, and yet you don't understand these things. If other, in other words, you should get this, Dumbo. Why are you not getting it? You've ha been taught, you've had all this teaching, you've got all this learning, and you, it's like you're blind. And if that contrast wasn't enough, John constructs his narrative so that to frame the unbelief of Nicodemus either side. First on the one hand with the simple men who believed in chapter 2 and then chapter 3 Nicodemus doesn't believe but then in chapter 4 the Samaritan woman gets it. She doesn't only believe but because of her, her whole village believes. John couldn't be more obvious in his intent. This contrast, contrast is there to make a point. Here are these signs that Jesus has performed that prove who he is and yet those who ought, those who were looking for the Messiah, didn't get it. And those who weren't even looking, perhaps, directly, they were in need of the Messiah, they got it. And that begs a question of the reader. And that's the question at the point of this second half of chapter 11 that, that we're looking at now, that second half. This is what is the point of this part of the chapter is. What will you do with Jesus, John asks. What will you do? With Jesus. These people did this, 
What will you do? Now, John uses this theme this, of these this different kinds of attitudes to Jesus right here at the end of chapter 11. We got, don't get two as before in this first half, first half of the book, really. Now we get three groups of people. In order to press home this point now, I'm going to go with this a bit like John does. I'm going to take his gospel and reorder it a little bit. I'm not just going to go through the thing verse by verse. I'm going to jumble this half of the chapter up a little bit. As we look, I feel a little bit like Morecambe Wise here. It's not like we're looking at all the verses, but not necessarily in the right order. But anyway, I'm not, at least not in the order John wrote them down. We're going to look at them in the relation to these three groups that he highlights. So the first group is the masses. The masses of people, the everybodies. The masses were conflicted with Jesus. They didn't know what to make of him. Right at verse 45, the first verse we wrote, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There's this contrast that many of the Jews believed, but some of them went tittle-tattle to the Pharisees to tell them what he'd done. And then verse 55 says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover now park that one we'll come back to that we're slowing down now it's been years of ministry and at the end of this section there's Passover and we're slowing down on this journey through Jesus ministry to the last few hours when Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples so when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover so now the Passover is perhaps the biggest single religious festival in the Jewish calendar. It brought, at the time, brought everyone to Jerusalem, to the temple, while it was still standing, from wherever they were around the, the country and outside if they could. And you can see the route that they took on this model of Jerusalem that's based on the city in Jesus' day, just before the Romans destroyed it. And they chant and sing psalms of ascent as they climbed up through the city of David, through the Valley of the Cheesemakers. I love that. Wonderful name. The Valley of the Cheesemakers. It's wonderful. Through the centre of Jerusalem, up the temple, up this, this, up the centre, you can see this processional way. This is the old part of Jerusalem with the temple right at the top on the right-hand side. And running up through the middle was this valley that gradually got filled in over time. But there was a processional way through the entrance here up to the top and climbed up the hill and they would sing chant and sing the psalms of ascent as they climbed up through the city of David, through the valley and through the centre of Jerusalem, to the temple gates, through the porticos and into the temple precinct. And it was crowded and it was noisy and it was a high holy day. It was a festival. And they'd have a ceremonial wash in the mikvahs, the baths that were conveniently placed just to the side of the temple entrance. And you can see the mikvahs today, the ceremonial baths there. They're still there. It's a bit, it's a bit hard to get a photograph, but always have to get a holiday snap in there somewhere, sorry. You can see the stone-built alcoves on the left that were shops and, and baths and outside, and then the steps down to this covered pool. You can just see it on the right-hand side of the slide. And there's steps that go down, and you went down one side unclean as a penitent, and you came up the other side cleansed, and you, you wouldn't want to cross over that raised line in the middle in case you stepped where the unclean people had trod. But anyway... Holiday steps snaps aside. While the crowds were looking out for this radical preacher that had got the authorities riled up, and as they stood in the temple and they were doing these things, they'd be saying, do you think he's coming? I don't see him. Do you, do you see him? And they're looking for him and they don't see him. 
the wavering of it. Is he going to be here? Is he really going to be here? This is Passover, he must be here. Is he who he says he is? And they're vacillating, and this is, this is the way, this is the key with the many, as John, as John calls them. In fact, the phrase many of the Jews only appears in John's Gospel. It's, it isn't any of the other Gospels. And it's almost exclusively associated with the raising of Lazarus, but there's one exception. And that one exception is the resurrection of Jesus. So you have this idea of many in John's Gospel, many of the Jews. The idea is that it's, it's associated with raising of the dead and the, the, the response to it. And the raising of Lazarus, which is really a foreshadowing of the ultimate resurrection of the Lord, of Jesus. The, and the peace, people vacillate in their ideas about what is this? It's, they're baffled because this is the sign of signs. People don't just spontaneously rise from the dead when they've been buried for four days, three days. It doesn't happen. So if it does, it's impressive. It's kind of a hint that the person who did it may be a bit special. At least you'd think so. So the phrase many of the Jews, this group that's referred to as the many, seems to emphasise John's point about belief and unbelief. It's a reference to this nameless, faceless crowd out there that never stakes out their ground, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. They're frightened. They're stupid. They're indecisive. Who knows? So er earlier in chapter 11 of, of verse 19, we read, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And then we have this reference in chapter 11 that we just read. And then again, in the next chapter, in chapter 12, we read, so the chief priests were made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing him. And then back in, uh, towards the end of the chapter, verse 19, verse 20, uh, sorry, chapter 19, verse 20, we, the one that's associated with crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign sign above Jesus' cross was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. Many of the Jews read that sign. And there was opposition to that sign, right? Don't write King of the Jews, Caiaphas said. He said he was, right, he said he was the King of the Jews. So this reference here to the many, is this reference to those who vacillate, who don't know, who don't understand. I say stupid, I don't mean it in unintelligent, I mean just a stupor. There's this, I, this cloud on their mind and they can't make their mind up you can't nail them down so what do we do with this i'll tell you one thing you don't do you don't try and decide who jesus is by polling the masses that's not the answer the masses don't know john didn't write this gospel so you can get together a focus group and and see what everybody thinks and come up with a consensus and a decision based on opinions no John writes this gospel so you can see what Jesus has done, so you can hear what Jesus has taught, and then you make the decision. Not based on polling the people and what people around you might feel, but based on the evidence that's presented. There are many people that can help you and aid you and point you to the truth. As your parents, praise God if you had parents who taught you and discipled you and dragged you to church when you rather have been to your, on your PlayStation or watching TV or playing with your friends or whatever. God bless your parents. But their faith isn't yours. 
got friends and co-workers and family members and classmates and praise the Lord for those if they point you to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But you'll not stand before God and give an account for who your friends were or what your friends believed. Social media is full of opinions. So many opinions, it's, it's, it's impossible to make decisions about so many things. But social media is not where we go to establish our understanding of who Jesus is. Even though, thanks to Anna, our stuff at Regent's out there all over the social media, and hopefully it'll help point some folks in the right direction. But John says, look at what he did. Look at what he taught. Don't be like the many who vacillate and rely on other people's opinions and what it might what might be going on. In the end, following the many leads you astray. Faith in Christ is a personal matter. It's not a corporate one. Now, while the masses were conflicted about Jesus, the council wasn't conflicted, the Sanhedrin wasn't conflicted at all. The council felt threatened by Jesus. And that's the second group, the disbelievers. Let's, let's just look again at verses 47 to 53. Forty-seven says, then, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here's this man performing many signs, and if we let him get on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both the temple and, and, and our nation. Excuse me. Now, of course, you remember at the time the Roman Empire was occupying Palestine, they were an occupying power. The Jews were under their control. There, were, there was Roman rule in charge of the place, but they were allowed under the Pax Romana, as it was called, to have a certain amount of autonomy. They could have their religious council and the authority, the, the, the authority that that had within the Jewish religion, but it only went so far. And as long as your religion wasn't seen as a political challenge, and it was permitted, and, and, and many foreign religions were actually not just tolerated, but actually became incorporated into Roman life. The, the Egyptian religion was particularly, particularly the worship of Isis was, was very popular, even right in the center of Rome. But if your religion was seen as a way of uniting the people in opposition to Roman rule, then they were quite ready to stomp out any practice in a most brutal way. It happened to the Druids on Anglesey in North Wales in, in AD 60. And they eventually did it to the Jews in, in Jerusalem in AD 70. But an army of something 30,000 strong destroyed the city and pulled down the temple so there wasn't even one stone standing on another. And it was a siege that lasted five. But we've seen some horrible, horrible things happening in Mariupol. But that's a siege that's gone on three months. A siege that went on five months would do even worse. But here around AD 30 or so, as the events are described in Jerusalem, there was peace. And the Romans were tolerating the religion, but the temple authorities were worried about the trouble being stirred up. And Jesus' popularity was spreading, and the Romans were getting wind of it, because just as the Romans were famous for their arches and their aqueducts and their roads, they were notorious for their ability to put down anything that threatened them. And the chief priests and the Pharisees were more concerned about the possibility of this losing their place and their power among the Romans than they were whether or not this was really the Messiah. So then one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realise it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation 
perish. He didn't say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Now you read those last two sentences, and they shouldn't go together, should they? They just, you read them and you think, how can you say that and then plot against his life? They look at the end of the chapter, the last verse in, chap, in the chapter, verse 57 goes on the same way. And the chief priests and the Pharisees have given orders that someone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that, so that they might arrest him. This phrase, chief priests and Pharisees, again, it's another key, a key. There's a code to this. It's used seven times in the Gospels, five times in John, and two are in Matthew. In John chapter 7, they plot to arrest him. In John chapter 11, they put out the warrant, as we've just read. And in John chapter 18, they execute the warrant. So look, look here in John chapter 18. From the priests and Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons, it says. And so interestingly, it wasn't the Romans that arrested Jesus. It was the, the chief priests and it was the Pharisees and their henchmen. It was the council because they felt threatened by him. Jesus wasn't crucified because the Romans looked at him and thought he was a threat to us. He was crucified because the council looked at him and thought he might be a threat to them, his own. And the council said he's the threat because he risked the tiny little scraps of power that the Romans allowed them left to exercise. And it carried on after the crucifixion of Jesus as well. It carried on. If we look at Acts chapter 4, Peter and John healed the man, man at the beautiful gate. This is the beautiful gate as it is now. It's blocked up and it, it lies under the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but you can still see the remains there. There's an arch there if you look carefully in the middle of the picture, and that was the beautiful gate. And Peter and Joel healed a lame man on those, probably on these very steps. And for that dastardly act, that impertinent act of actually healing someone, daring to bring something beautiful into someone's life who didn't have it, they were hauled up before the Sanhedrin. And we read this in Acts chapter 4. What are they going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. I mean, you don't just heal someone who's lame and who can't walk without someone noticing it. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, this dastardly thing of healing and joy, we can't let that spread amongst the people because we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Same power structure, holding on to the same threads of power, despite the evidence in front of their own eyes. Miraculous healing, resurrection, and still they don't believe. And they had to get rid of Jesus. They had to crucify. They'd crucified him. They thought they'd got rid of him. But all of a sudden, the problem of Jesus having power over death, like that's a problem, had come back even worse than it was before. What sick, twisted minds sees Jesus as a problem? Brothers, sisters... Folks on Zoom, folks listening to the podcast, check your own heart. Do you see Jesus, the champion of life, the defeater of death, as in some way a threat to your own position, to your own power, as small as that may be, to your possessions, to your pride? Do you? If you don't, why do you hesitate? Jesus' power is the only power that's worth anything. Our power, our possessions, our lifestyle, that all dies. It doesn't come with us. It ends in a box. 100 out of 100 people die. 
and nothing we have in this life can go with us. Jesus' power is so far beyond that, it's priceless. That pettiness just evaporates. So, 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 so many are conflicted about coming to faith in Jesus because of what it will cost them in this terms of control in this life, in terms of power over ourselves, in terms of sovereignty over what we do. And it's the exact same thing as the Pharisees were facing here. It's this threat that Jesus poses. Do you need Jesus to fit into your plans and into your programs, or can you simply come to him in repentance and faith? You see, Jesus is a means to an end, someone you can use as one who frees you to use you as he wills. All the crowds and the council had their response to Jesus. John's hope is your response as a reader of his gospel would be reflected in the third group. The third group of people who responded to what he had, what he has to say, the disciples. His hopes like them, you believe, and in believing you'll have life. In verse 54 we read, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. And the rest of John's gospel is largely devoted to that time that he gave to his disciples that started at this point. The communion and the fellowship and the intimacy that they had with Jesus because they believed. They weren't like the many who wavered and vacillated. They weren't like the council that's in open opposition, but they believed. They clung to Jesus. They followed him. They knew he had the words of eternal life. So just before we close, let's get back to that point about the Passover that John mentioned earlier. I said we'd explore it a bit more, so we've got a couple of minutes, so let's just do that now. You might think that mentioning the Passover is a bit of a throwaway, just a device John uses to locate the events in time and space, but when you recognise what John's doing here, you see this word actually screams out in the text. Right back at the beginning of the Gospel, in the first chapter you read, the next day, he says in chapter 1, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he closes off the, the frame right at the end of the Gospel in chapter 19, verse 14. He says this, John says, It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified, and so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And then in the passage we're looking at, in verse 50, what's going to happen, Caiaphas says, he, he, he prophesies, not realising he's prophesying, he says it's better that one man die for the nation. He says that as preparations for the Passover are going on, and Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and then at the end, those who are present at the Passover say, put him to death and crucify him. And they do. And Lazarus is raised, and there's a Passover, and then Jesus has Passover, and then he's raised. And Jesus is the Passover lamb. The message is clear. Jesus has overpowered death. And more importantly, Jesus has power over the sin that causes death. And that's why there's hope of the resurrection. Jesus is the Passover lamb that died for the nation. So the question really is a simple one. What will you do with Jesus now you know this? Now you see this. 
now that the picture is clear that he is the Messiah, that he does have authority over death and hell and the grave. What are you going to do with that fact? Will you waver like the many did? Will you war against it like the council did? Deny the reality of it? Or will you believe it and become a disciple? In reading John's thesis, John's gospel, there's only one answer that makes sense. And here's the problem. If you find yourself with the many, if you find yourself with a council, sin doesn't allow you to do what makes sense, but it forces you to do what's nonsense. Going through life knowing the death rate is 100%. There's nothing else certain in life than death and taxes, the, prophecy, the proverb goes. No one gets out of here alive. Knowing this and rejecting the only one in the history of the world who's an answer for the thing that all of us face and all of us fear and so many of us have seen creep through our nearest and dearest this last couple of years. What do you do with Jesus? Don't let sin make a fool out of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John. We thank you for the gospel account he's left us. The good news about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us. I ask you that you open our eyes this morning. That any of us who see the truth but can't believe it will remember. Will encounter you for themselves. And through the power of your Holy Spirit get to know you. We lift up to you our friends, our families, our loved ones who don't know you. And cannot see Jesus as their Messiah. Even though we've shown them to them many times, shown him to them many times. So we ask for your love to, to break through into their lives. Because we ask it in the name of your Son, our Saviour.